This is Pulse 95. You're listening to the Eyes On podcast. Sharjah is celebrating 30 years of Sharjah Biennial and Sharjah Biennial 15. They are trying to bring the vision of the late Akwe and Weezer to life by thinking historically in the present. And Annalie Davis is trying to do that through her work. Pray to Flowers, a plot of disalienation right here in Sharjah, which is an interesting conversation about colonialism, post-colonialism, and tea. First of all, welcome to the show, Annalie Davis. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure. Likewise. Now, the title, Pray to Flowers, a plot of disalienation. And the title can be broken into two parts in some way. And especially when I think of the word plot. Now, plot can have a, the idea of, yes, we're plotting land, but also plot as in you're working on something, some kind of idea, or I know it might have some kind of, um, let's say, negative connotations, but you're plotting to do something as well. Do you mind giving us an explanation as to what the title refers to. Yeah. Thank you so much. And yes, I think the, the word plot can be both a noun and a verb. Um, so pray to flowers, the work includes a blessing and it's a secular blessing. So there's this idea of not play, praying to the gods or within a structured formal religion, but acknowledging the power of the natural world around us. Um, a plot of disalienation. You know, the colonial project is a project that made us feel very alien from a lot of things. People were transported from around the world to the Caribbean, so people became alien from their homeland, from their language, from their culture, from their tribes, their traditions, their rituals. And what I'm trying to do in this title is to speak about creating a space where all people are welcomed and they feel disalienated. So there's a sense of trying to, to bring people into a safe space where they feel connected and connected through the work that is in there which we can talk a bit more about but the plot is really important both as a noun and as a verb the plot is um, refers to a marginal piece of land within the plantation that was given to indentured and enslaved people to grow food and to sustain themselves and it was also a plot of resistance so within that garden or that small plot there were many things that happened outside of just growing ground provisions it was a space where the enslaved could grow plants for healing for nurturing um, and i guess we can get into that in more detail but that's just a kind of an intro and how did you decide to bring this to Sharjah and why did you think that it would be the appropriate kind of work to bring to Sharjah you've done a lot within let's say the same field or within the same area so how did you bring on this vision So um, the director of the Sharjah Biennial, Hura Kazimi, came to Barbados and did a studio visit a couple of years ago and invited me to, uh, she showed me the space, the Beit al-Hurma space, and she said, you know, this translates to the woman's house. Would you be interested in this space? And I was like, yes, because I'm interested in how some of the plants have healing for women's reproductive and post-reproductive health. And so I love that that was the woman's house and I could put an apothecary in there. 
as well as doing this, um, the embroidered drawings, which also speak a lot to women's labor. Um, it was a challenge to think about growing plants in a very foreign environment that's very different to the Caribbean, a kind of a, a, a desert place that is water scarce and there's not a lot of greenery. So that was an interesting challenge. Um, and yeah, from the invitation, I just started thinking about how we could create this um, this living, breathing apothecary that would people would want to be in that space. And this space, you said, is going to be a sort, somewhat of a communal space. And even working on it, you did not work on it yourself. And I believe I was stalking your Instagram for a while, and I noticed it's, it's you put in a lot of many, many weeks worth into it. Can you tell me about the planning phase? How did you go on about finding the correct, or at least the seeds and plants or crops that you believe truly translated your vision? So a really vital part of this project, it would not have happened without the collaboration of my colleague and fellow artist, Yuri Guipin. Yuri is a, a Rotterdam-based artist that works with gardens and plants. And we met at a seminar in Germany last July, and he had a small garden there and I asked him to collaborate with me so we came in November and I shared with him the history of the plot and this idea of trying to create a biodiverse space because as you know when the British came into Barbados in the 17th century it was a very they met a very biodiverse island they wiped out that biodiversity by the third quarter of the 17th century to replace it with a monocrop system and that was sugarcane um, the plot for me is a kind of a post-plantation utopic space where we learn from what the enslaved community were doing by creating these biodiverse space, spaces. Um, Yuri has a seed bank of over 600 seeds. So I brought seeds from Barbados, he brought seeds from the Netherlands, which he's collected from around the world. We did access a few Palestinian heirloom seeds, specifically the okra. And we had many conversations before we got here and then came in with great excitement in November last year to begin that process of sowing the seeds. The garden, um, the sugarcane, the banana, the moringa and the jasmine were brought in as, as small trees or shrubs. But the other 150 species we planted from seed in November. So the growth of the apothecary is literally from seed in November. And when we left, uh, we some of those little seedlings were like two or three centimeters out of the soil and we were panicking that we were leaving these wee things uh, without enough protection and to our joy in the regular communication with the team at Sharjah Foundation uh, we continued to see its flourishing and proliferation in the months that we were away. The plants and the crops that you picked out for this project, now you mentioned that some of them are from Barbados, some of them are from the seed bank that um, your partner brought in, but which? what made you pick particular ones for Sharjah? Now, I know obviously you had to take into consideration the environment of Sharjah, mm -hmm. but why these in particular? What about them that it signifies your vision and also signifies what you're trying to bring as a healing and safe space here in Sharjah? Mm -hmm. So some of the seeds that I brought from Barbados would have been used and continue to be used by Barbadians for healing. Uh, for example, something that grows on the hedgerow of cane fields is called Circe. 
uh, Marmordica charantia is a scientific name. It has a beautifully shaped leaf, almost like a miniature papaw leaf. It puts out a pale yellow flower and it has a small orange, kind of round, bumpy cucumber, um, like a fruit and when that breaks open there are seeds covered in a fire engine red kind of fleshy pulp. Uh, this leaf is used in teas, it's very bitter and it tastes terrible, um, but uh, very often these bitter, bitter tasting teas are very good for you and so they remove toxins and parasites and Barbadians use them to clean their blood. Um, the root was used as an abortifacient. So within enslaved society, women were also using plants to control their fertility so that they could restrict the birth of children coming in to the system of, of enslavement. Um, so the, the Circe, I'm interested in that it's kind of the sugarcane is being taken over by these plants that are crawling up it. And the Circe is this kind of creeping vine that you find on the hedgerows of many cane fields. There's also lemongrass, which I know you use here that's been growing that's what we call fever grass so it will control flus and fevers um, pride of barbados which you have on your highways it's our national flower but it's growing on the highways in Sharjah. it's like a shrub that puts out these very bright orange and yellow flowers and that's our national flower um, that also is used to control fertility in the caribbean um, so really looking at plants that had the capacity to offer some kind of healing and then combined with Yuri we just saw blossoming the milk thistle which is this kind of multicolored green and white leaf that's kind of like thorny on the edges and it has this beautiful purple spiky flower that comes out of the center and milk thistle will cleanse the liver. Um, so we really have been looking at plants that have healing properties and thinking about their traditional uses. Um, a lot of that knowledge has been lost in the Caribbean because it's practice under the collective term obia. Maybe you're more familiar with voodoo that comes out of Haiti, but obia is one of the collective terms in the Anglophone Caribbean to speak to Afro-syncretic practices. And that was illegal until the 20th century. So a lot of these practices had to be covert. Um, and so we've lost a lot of that information and, and a lot of what is retained is some of the knowledge of how these plants were used. So it was really looking at plants that have been typically used for healing um, flus, fevers, parasites, um, controlling fertility, the motherwort which puts out this gorgeous purple flower used for women in menopause which I became interested in as I moved into the post-reproductive phase of my life really interested in well how did women use that plant at that time of their life. So I'm not a botanist and I'm not a gardener, I'm an artist working with plants and, and trying to re-educate myself um, because I had a very colonial education. What do I not know and what should I be knowing more about? And the project allows me to learn more. So when we're talking about post-colonialism or colonialism while people are trying to just like you around the world as they delve deep into their generational trauma and trying to understand everything that happened a very long time ago that still affects them to this day still affects their land their livelihood a lot of times they interpret it in various ways and I have noticed that as you mentioned the apothecary it's such a it's very 
calming. It's very inviting, very welcoming. And even the ceremony that you did at the opening week of the Sharjah Biennial, it felt like a very, like you said, a safe space. So why did you decide on creating a safe space? Like I, I obviously understand that a lot of there are a lot of um, unhealed wounds, and that's why generational trauma still exists. But why did you choose to do have a safe space rather than perhaps um, taking on a much more straightforward the kind of um, approach where you're I don't want to say I don't want to use the word attacking but more of an active rather than a passive action mm-hmm. yeah that's a good question I I wanted to see this space as a kind of a post-COVID space for rest and a lot of the work in the biennial which is very powerful is very hard and the world is in a really hard place at the moment. And I've noticed that so many people are withdrawing from looking at the news on a daily basis because it's so traumatizing. And we're living in a very difficult time. And I think that for us to be able to heal, we need to imagine how we can do that. And we need to pause. Part of the colonial project is about making us feel stressed that we have to be productive and active and doing stuff all the time and that our worth is inherently linked to how much work we do. But I see this place as kind of thinking of resting and pausing as a resistance to that kind of capitalist machinery of overproduction. And we keep talking about needing to um, to heal the earth. And I'm interested in ideas around slow cultural work and degrowth because we can't just keep doing more and growing more and being more all of the time. The planet is exhausted, but our minds and our hearts and our souls are also exhausted. And so I wanted for the apothecary and the interior space with the embroidered drawing to be a place where people could take a break in the biennial and come and sit down and walk through the garden and have tea which the Fen Cafe will offer and to sit and look at the drawings and to read some of the books and just to take some time to be calm, to process. You know, there's so many wounds, the colonial project. You can see in this biennial that colonization is being um, reckoned with. There is so much trauma but we can't look at it all the time. I live in a place where the entire country became a plantation. I live on a farm where I can see the windmill and the sugar works building. I am fully aware that below the soil is a slaughterhouse. It's very difficult to look at that every single day. And we need to create spaces because we're meant to be whole. We're not meant to just be traumatized constantly. And so I want the apothecary to feel like a healing space that people can come in and exhale on their own or have a conversation and feel that they can begin to have some agency in how they control their days. Your point of view is very interesting because for a very long time we've heard people say, um, let's bring attention, let's bring awareness to things. But you're here saying that we already are aware of many things. We are past the educational phase we're living through. it. We're, we're aware of it. Now we need a break from it. We don't want to forget it, but just a little bit of a break from it and another point of view of looking into it. And I love that very, very much. Can we talk about the embroidery? work because there's obviously there's the plants you work hard on these but also the beautiful artwork in the apothecary as well Mm -hmm. so there are a series of five large panels and then two small pieces I see that the embroidery work in some ways mirrors the garden in that it's this kind of hybridization of different practices that the Caribbean has been creolized through the transplanting of people and the, the, the middle passage and the transatlantic slave trade so some of the pieces that you see in there are bits of crochet and this practice would have come in from Great Britain Barbadians black and white Barbadians of all classes of my
my mother's generation would all have known how to do this. And for some women, it became a means of economic independence and how to support their children. They're things of beauty. It speaks about that interior room in the woman's house or Betal Herma speaks to women controlling the kind of domestic space. But I also think there's role for beauty. You know, there's so much horror in the Caribbean history that we also want beautiful things and we deserve to have beautiful things and we can make beautiful things. And I feel that the architecture of our past doesn't need to be the blueprint of our future. And we can, we have the right to make these beautiful things. There's also fabrics that are imported more recently that a lot of Barbadians would use during particular festivals so that would speak to African patterns and rhythms and traditions and then there's language in the embroidered work the first one is unlearn the plantation I was born and raised on a plantation and uh, I feel that my life's work has been about unlearning the plantation because the plantation speaks to hierarchy who belongs and who doesn't who fits in who's excluded ideas around racism and classism and that is so embodied like the process of osmosis so unlearning the plantation is the first step and then there's praying to flowers outside of organized religion how can we worship the natural world that is around us defend nature plant gardens just the very act of planting seeds and creating more green spaces resisting despair and feeling joy is the fourth panel there's so much anxiety and depression in the world. Is it possible for us to resist the impetus to be exhausted and overworked and depressed and to feel some sense of joy by being in natural environments or just being within our bodies. Um, and then the last piece is pause, you know, be still and pause, uh, requiring these moments of interior reflection and, and slowing down. And then on the one end, there's a piece that has bush tea, which is the name of the practice that a lot of Barbadians use, bush tea, bush bath, bush medicine. And on the other side is this embroidered work on a beautiful linen panel with the moringa, which is this very healing plant. I made a lot of that with many women that came to help me, including my mom, who's in her mid-80s, my sister, some friends, people who brought friends. So it then created this communal space of making work and having conversations around women's work and lives. So I feel it's a beautiful complement to the garden that those two spaces work quite well together. Can you take us through the actual imagery on the embroidery? And like you said, it's a collaborative work. So how did you manage to take all all these ideas and make them into one, one representation of what you're trying to say. So it's very much a process. It begins, I was working on all of them simultaneously. Um, I love Unlearn the Plantation, that's one of my favorite ones. And then as you look further down on that panel, it's not as visible, but there's the word plot. And I really love that word, this idea of plotting against the plantation. It's not just the plot, it's the plot of land and the growing of the food, but it's also this idea of moving against and resisting a lot of what we've been taught. The piece that says resist despair, feel joy, has in a lot of cyanotypes that are applied onto the um, domestic fabric. And those cyanotypes types are of plants in my garden that bring me a lot of joy. So there's papaw, there's moringa, there's rock balsam, there's garden balsam, ylang ylang and circe, um, as well as wonder of the world. So that was a way of responding to what's in my immediate environment. The pause and be still I was really trying to create a piece that was very calming. Um, and then the pray to flowers is this like explosion of color and 
textures and different kinds of fabrics, the crochet, the imported fabric that people use at, you know, Kadumant or the kind of local carnival. Um, so they kind of all developed at the same time and I would keep going from one to the other, um, which was, yeah, a really, it was a wonderful process and I know nothing about embroidery, right? So I picked up a needle in June of last year at the Focus Foundation residency in Girona in Spain and I was petrified because I was a terrible embroidery student at school. I failed. Uh, I thought it was too, um, you know, it wasn't for me. And then I just have fallen in love with it and I am really enjoying the slowness. You cannot rush that work. It takes time. It forces you to slow down and it's been a very meditative practice that I have enjoyed and I have an intention of continuing learning more about that. And what's in the future for this beautiful installation? What do you what is going to happen to it after June? Is it going to continue as an apothecary? Is Can we go ahead and if, when the plants um, bloom, can we take some flowers? Mm -hmm. Can we take some uh, herbs? Can we take some um, vegetables? Or So can you tell us a little bit more about mm -hmm. that? Because as much as we want the biennial to go on forever, unfortunately, it won't. <laughs> it won't. Yes, it'll end around June. So what is going to happen there? So the... The apothecary will be maintained for the next three years. So we're now working out what that handover and transition is like because we would like to work with someone who maintains the ethos of how we imagine, have imagined the apothecary. So it will be taken care of. We want people to come in there. I thought a lot about um, a lot of the the people who work here that come from other parts of the world. When we were sowing seeds, there were a lot of people from Pakistan and India and Nepal and the Cameroon and Ghana who recognize the plants and would tell us how they use their plants back home. And so I would like people that work here and that live here to come in and feel that they want to be in that space to harvest. Absolutely. I'm growing my father's pumpkin, which is proliferating. People can harvest the pumpkins, take the holy basil, make teas. Absolutely. Um, we also have a seed depository, which was depleted on the opening day and we're replenishing. So people can take seeds and we have information about how those plants were used traditionally. So people can take seeds and grow them in their own garden. And then of course there's the sound work, which we didn't speak about. There's a blessing for desalination that plays at five times during the day. It's a complement to the call to prayer that I was so enamored by when I was here in November, how it would punctuate the day. Uh, and I wanted the secular prayer to the to the garden, to people that work there, to the hands that helped build it, to the seeds, um, and and that it's a secular prayer. Uh, so that that blessing continues to be played at five times during the day. Uh, but hopefully, the garden will continue to flourish. I'm glad you brought up the blessing because I was going to touch upon that. I really want to know how did that come to be as well because now we've talking about one part, the second part, and this is the third part that completes your apothecary. Like you mentioned, it's five times a day. It's parallel to the Adhan that we hear. Does it also happen around the same timings or did you go beyond that? What is the process behind that? So I wanted it to be at different times because I don't want to be disrespectful to the, the timing that the call to prayer happens here, but just to acknowledge that that is a way to punctuate the day. I've been thinking about using my voice as another medium within my work to explore. So um, 
I worked with a, a voice coach, Janelle Headley in Barbados, and then I worked uh, with a sound producer and a percussionist, Lowry, who then laid the piano bed for the work. Um, and so we recorded that in Barbados and, and sent that over. And it was really just my writing to be able to think about what kind of a blessing could I offer that would resonate with people. And just starting in a really simple way, like blessing soil and saplings, you know, wind, um, seeds, uh, blessing, naming some of the plants, the blue vervain, the Circe, the lemongrass, the moringa, blessing everyone that comes from all over the world, whoever walks through there, blessing. Um, and it feels like it's the right place to do that. And uh, so I'm hoping that I'll continue to explore that when I leave here. Now that we have the entire vision of your installation, it's beautiful installation that honestly, just you talking about it gave me goosebumps and it's making me want to run there right now <laughs> to Beit al Hamman, just staying there, listening to the blessing, just smelling everything and taking everything in. What can you tell us as some parting or final words as to the state of the world or how you're feeling about it and how can we deconstruct? Well, I'm not saying deconstruct in the sense that we forget or just set aside our past, but how can we think of the past, think historically in the present? Well, I, I feel that our educational system has, and the colonial project, has used education as a way to control access to knowledge. And when I thought about thinking historically in the present, um, I felt that there was a lot of information that was missing. So there's a lot of maps and writing on the plantation as a monocrop space. But there, it's almost impossible to find maps of the grounds that the enslaved people had. And I then began to learn that the plantation is the practical application of geometry with its very neat furrows. But within the plots, they had an, another way of understanding their universe in terms of the intercropping that may have looked chaotic to the planter, but it had its own system of, um, I guess, increasing biodiversity. We've seen all of these pollinators coming into the garden since we arrived here last week. So I think the, the thing to do is to, uh, to probe and to look underneath the stories that we've inherited and find um, other ways of being able to understand our history, to empower ourselves, and so that all of that history doesn't get continually lost. So my own process has been through like primary research, speaking to Barbadians who have this knowledge, um, reading against the grain of history, um, and how powerful it is to plant seeds and spaces and in that planting to form community and have different conversations to harvest it to make the teas um, you know the teas are going to be available at the Fen Cafe for the duration of the biennial so uh, I guess maybe some of the parting words would be to embody the garden because some of uh, some of those plants will be included in the teas and to form relationships with maybe one plant you know, to think about one plant, that to grow it, to harvest it, to plant it from seed, to work with it, and just in that small way to form a little bit of a more intimate relationship. Um, my challenge as a Barbadian has been to 
how can I form a more intimate relationship with the landscape that's been mediated for centuries by the colonial project? And I do that in really simple ways. It's by walking as a ritual in former sugarcane fields. It's by drawing, it's by um, making works, and now it's by planting gardens. Pray to Flowers, a plot of desalination, is a place to learn and educate yourself, to rebel and also heal. Thank you so much, Annalie, for one, creating this beautiful space here in Sharjah, and for two, taking this time to talk to us about your beautiful, beautiful garden and contribution to Sharjah Biennial 15. Thank you so much, Aisha. It's a pleasure. Cannot wait to see what comes out from you in the future as well, because this seems like an ongoing life project and it's quite beautiful, to be honest. This is Pulse 95. Tune in live every weekday from 4 p.m.